Hey, hey, y'all. All right, back again. This time with Michelle Foucault's Discipline and Punish. So this one has been recommended a lot, and I've been meaning to do it for a long time. And now here it is. But before then, uh, a few things to say. So this will be available on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify. Um, the Spotify stuff uh, site, I, I need to do some work on it because not all the episodes are up there for some reason. So your best bet is Podbean or iTunes for now. Uh, also, there's my Patreon account for anyone willing to contribute to that. That would be cool. Uh, and if not, I have some funny goals that are at least worth checking out. They might be, um, I don't know, you might get a chuckle out of them or not. I don't know. Um, is that all? I think that's all. For now, discipline and punish. So I want to say something first or a couple things first about uh, some of the terminology used here. So I want to make a distinction between two forms of punishment or two forms of control and they are judicial and juridical so judicial this is according to the translator uh corresponds to the extraction of confessions by interrogation and the systematic application of pain so that's what we mean by judicial and juridical relates specifically to the application of a kind of disciplinary mechanism through the force of the law or through various kind of, you know, juridical, like justice, judges, lawyers, these types of things that command a kind of control over the subject or over the individual. So this is important because I think that people sometimes use these terms interchangeably when in fact there's a pretty big difference. And then one more thing, in a footnote, right at the beginning, he's he's clear that he doesn't want this to be a project that can simply be extended to any kind of uh, epistemic setting, to any kind of culture or nation or anything. That doesn't mean there aren't applications for it everywhere, but he cautions that what he's doing here in this book deals almost exclusively with what happened in France. And here, I, I will say one more thing. For those interested in probably the biggest idea that comes out of this book, that is the Panopticon, that'll only be talked about in the second episode because that's only uh, brought up in the second half of the book, along with the, the idea of docile bodies, which I think is another pretty important idea, especially for anyone currently going or in university and learning about this stuff for the first time. Those are kind of the key ideas that will be brought up. But without further ado, here let's hop into chapter one, titled The Body of the condemned. So this chapter begins with a pretty brutal description of uh, torture against who is called Damien the Regicide. So, so Damien would, be, would have been his name in France. Uh, the Regicide, so Regicide being a person that kills royalty or would kill a king. So without getting going into too many details, because it is very graphic, what this person went through was, you know, they, they were beaten, they were essentially skinned, um, they were burned, and they were dismembered, including a number of other things that are not really necessary to go into. But what Foucault is doing here is really kind of setting the timbre, the tone, for what this book is going to do. That is, explore torture. And what happened to it? Because he goes almost immediately from describing this very brutal torture to a very different form of punishment. One that doesn't rely on inflicting direct pain on the body 
in the kind of extreme way the torture does, but instead inflicts pain in a more psychological way, or in a way that for him can be described as attacking the soul. So the illustration that he uses for this uh, is with what he calls a timetable, which is like setting up the exact minute that anyone does anything uh, so that their day is completely regimented and controlled. So that was a new form of punishment that kind of emerged, where it wasn't about inflicting pain on someone for some wrong they committed. It was instead a matter of controlling them and making that control so strong that they were unable to experience their world as any kind of autonomous being. So in that way, this first chapter will serve as a kind of general introduction that captures the entire essence of the book. And each subsequent chapter builds each one of the separate ideas brought up so that, he, you know, he delineates them and, and expands upon them. So if it might seem like I'm jumping a lot here, where you're wondering, you have a number of questions, just wait and it'll probably all come out throughout the rest of the book here. So the introduction of this quote-unquote more humane form of punishment that is moving away from torture to a more what he calls disciplinary one, or one that uses, you know, not direct punishment or, or inflicts pain, for him corresponded to a general shift that tried to and in some sense, he says that it's global. This was happening all over the world for some reason. Uh, but again, we're sticking mostly with France. Uh, he says that this was a general desire to kind of what he called humanize it, right? To make pain not the object of punishment. Now, he suggests that it might have been that people saw torture as being worse than the crime itself just because of how violent it was and just because of how archaic it seemed so instead it was there was a transition on the part of various what he calls you know points of power or um, powerful zones that wanted to find a new way to control people that wouldn't give the sense of them being controlled or wouldn't give the sense of people or wouldn't make people fear them in the way that torture kind of did where you know Torture is something that I think, for the most part, no one wants to undergo. So it was meant to serve as a kind of deterrent, that is, to keep people from doing bad things. And that torture, for Foucault, actually instilled a degree of shame on the part of the social body because it was so violent that it troubled the idea of a kind of righteous, uh, you know, justice system, and, you know, especially with the emergence of the, you know, Declaration of the Rights of Man, it made it so that torture was certainly cast in a pretty bad light. So in response to that, justice then saw it necessary, or the powerful, then saw it necessary to kind of hide torture, to kind of hide punishment. So instead of making it a spectacle that everyone could see as a means of deterring people from doing bad things, Suddenly, people that were being tortured were being tortured in basements, were being tortured in cells, were being tortured in, you know, dark areas, away from the public eye. Now, this had a really interesting effect for Foucault, because people still knew what was going on. People still knew that punishment was happening, just away from the public eye. So what that meant was that it kind of entered the imagination. 
instead of it being out there for anyone to see, it now became a kind of abstraction. And this is happening in the 18th century, just FYI. So Foucault says that because it became an abstraction, it then kind of took on an ideal form. Because if people couldn't see it, then all they had of it was the kind of image that those in power wanted to maintain about it. That is, whatever kind of vision of it they would sell, let's say, for instance, that they were trying to make the person repent for their sins to God, then that is exactly what the narrative would say, and that is what the people would believe. So it made it a little bit more effective just because of it being hidden. But then the question, well, the question doesn't remain, but someone could ask, okay, well, if you have the capacity to control the narrative, is it really necessary for you to torture people? Is it really necessary for people to, you know, the executioner to walk into a room and perform, you know, terrible acts against someone? What about, what if you don't do that and instead create a narrative around a certain punishment that you can control without doing this kind of terrible act? So here we begin to see the kind of emergence of what we now know as the prison, which I want to reiterate we're going to build towards in a much more effective way with the subsequent chapters. But, you know, here's the general overview. But in this shift away from hurting the body, you know, through the name of uh, justice or in the name of justice, we shouldn't forget that the kinds of punishments that emerged, so some of these might include like solitary confinement, um, you know, labor, uh, fines, you know, other kinds of duties, anything like that. Foucault still says that these things are still exerted on the body, right? When you have to do hard labor for a crime you committed, your body is still being mobilized in some way. But he says that it isn't, you know, the same kind of punishment, that it is characteristically different. So it is with this turn that we see a turn in many other domains in the prison setting or in the penal setting. So it became not about inflicting as much pain as possible on the human body, but actually the reverse. It became a matter of dissociating pain on the body from punishment and making it specifically about controlling the person. And control can only be done most effectively if you control their mind. So here we then see the emergence or the kind of uh, introduction of various different um, disciplines, that is, experts in various disciplinary fields, like doctors, psychiatrists, chaplains, all of these types of people enter the scene to kind of allow their own discipline to exert itself over the person being punished or the person being condemned, psychologists especially, because with the emergence of the human sciences around that time, and the emergence of a kind of special psychology around that time, it made it so that people, at least those in power, were beginning to understand that there's more to the body than just the body, right? The mind was a very powerful tool, and the mind is something that could be, if ordered correctly, can be used in the favor of the overall system generally. All of this is particularly true when we look at the way that execution changed. So execution for a very long time was the thing that would follow torture. 
So with torture, someone would experience pain almost to infinity, right? Because torture was supposed to be something that, you know, sucked. So how do you make it suck? Well, you make it last a long time. You make the pain something that no one could possibly bear. To which death, that is the final moment, was the release. You know, after the person has been tortured for so long, they were often asked, you know, do you wish to now repent your sins to God? Do you wish to apologize now to the social body? Do you wish now to apologize to the sovereign? And it was after that moment that they could be executed because, you know, then according to, you know, the priests, according to the people in power, the person then atoned for their sins and were then, you know, they were to be admitted to heaven or be kind of kept in the good graces of the people. So the execution then, the final moment, was that release. Then execution took a different turn, where it kind of got rid of all that torture behind it, and just became a singular moment, where the person existed without experiencing pain, you know, ostensibly, and then they would be executed. And this execution was meant to be very quick, right? Hence the guillotine. So modern execution for Foucault then had two primary goals. That was to end its spectacle, to take it outside of public view, to make it something hidden, and also to end pain. Because pain was messy and pain was, quote-unquote, like barbaric. It just, it just appeared so archa archaic that it should be, you know, removed now that we have these rational, scientific means of controlling people. Foucault is not naive, though. He doesn't think that there was like a specific moment when all of this occurred. He kind of attributes this turn to somewhere in the 19th century, probably around the mid-19th century. But for anyone that knows, you know, public displays of torture go on to this day. So he, he, and he, he does recognize this. What he's doing instead is describing a kind of overall shift that becomes a kind of rule. To which he says, he concedes, there are absolutely exceptions, and these exceptions are important. But rather, we have to understand the kind of total shift for him, because that is what is most important. And what this general shift came with was a new form of control that I've been kind of alluding to. And what that assumes, or the form that that assumes for Foucault, is a more general form of surveillance over those that have committed crimes. Because surveillance, and this, you know, is exactly what the Panopticon is about, which we'll get into in the next episode. Um, surveillance is what allows people to be controlled in ways that torture doesn't allow, which might seem strange. Because if we put these two things side by side, that is a system predicated on torture or a system predicated on surveillance, I think for the most part, people would be more excited about a system predicated on surveillance. But Foucault would say, torture actually didn't happen very often. Torture was something very rare. Whereas what we are presented with with this mode of surveillance is a completely ubiquitous, completely ubiquitous, it's kind of redundant, but a ubiquitous form of control that really has seen no parallel before. And there's an interesting side effect of this mode of surveillance. Because when people are surveyed, they are kind of treated as individuals. They kind of become what he, you know, what he calls subjects. That is, they are subjected to a gaze that tries to understand the person, the criminal. 
tries to code them, tries to give a sense to them. So in that way, the role of the judge fundamentally changes. So the judge is not someone that just says, okay, you've committed this crime and you must undergo this punishment. Instead, a whole new slew of questions emerge from the judge and they go as follows. As he says on page 19, sorry. The question is no longer simply, has the act been established and is it punishable? But also, what is this act? What is this act of violence or this murder? To what level or to what field of reality does it belong? Is it a fantasy, a psychotic reaction, a delusional episode, a perverse action? It is no longer simply who committed it, but how can we assign the causal process that produced it? Where did it originate in the author himself? Instinct, unconscious, environment, heredity? It is no longer simply what law punishes this offense, but what would be the most appropriate measures to take? How do we see the future development of the offender? What would be the best way of rehabilitating him? So a whole new discourse emerged at this time that was, it, it complicated it, right? It nuanced the problem. So instead of it being, you know, single offense, single offender, here is the punishment that corresponds to that, it becomes, who is this offender? For what reasons have they committed this offense? Do they have a kind of, you know, a mental situation that should be, you know, recognized? And there's no surprise then that there's a, I guess there's a kind of synchronization between the emergence of the prison and the emergence of, you know, mental institutions, because in these questions, with these questions I just, just described, what they were trying to parse out was whether or not the person was suited for prison or whether they were suited for a mental institution. So what that demanded was, you know, the emergence or the affirmation of various disciplinary mechanisms, like doctors, like psychiatrists, that could then contribute to this conversation. So there was a kind of meshing of what judgment was. So judgment wasn't simply reserved for the judge. It got extended to all of these other domains. So the um, doctor became a judge. The psychiatrist became a judge. And this goes even further throughout the course of the book as he describes it, where the teacher becomes a judge, the parent becomes a judge, and so on and so forth. And it is in this process that we see the emergence of a kind of knowledge of the body a knowledge of the, of the human that was kind of unparalleled before then, precisely because of the introduction of all these so-called points of, you know, knowledge, all of these experts that only sought to affirm their own disciplines in or onto the body of the condemned person, onto the criminal, so as to keep, keep their discipline going in a very, you know, topical way. And here we get a pretty interesting distinction between what he calls positive punishment and negative punishment. So before this, in the realm of torture, what we saw was a negative punishment because it sought to suppress actions. It sought to erase people. It sought to, you know, essentially, uh, effectively get, get people away. Whereas with this system, it's positive because it asks people to speak. It wants people to expand. It wants discourses around people, that is, 
whatever ailment they might have, whatever narrative history they have, these uh, powerful zones want these discourses to emerge. So in that way, it is positive. Now, this is something he expands upon even more in the history of sexuality, which I've done on here, um, one of the episodes here. So if you want more on that, you know, you can go check that out. But what this positive form of punishment does is produce the matrix of power knowledge. You know, a pretty famous Foucauldian term, where power located in these various experts, these disciplines, exerts its narrative or inscribes its narrative onto the body, which it can then say, look, our truth is confirmed in the existence of this truth on the body. Therefore, we, you know, perpetuate a whole domain of knowledge. But what Foucault is trying to draw attention to is that this knowledge doesn't really seem to emerge from a kind of neutral scientific objective stance, but is rather the product of, you know, a certain privilege afforded to these people that had a certain power afforded to them by the social body. So let me explain that in other words. Society recognized that certain people had a certain authority. Now, for a long time, that authority was kind of um, esoteric. That is, it remained in some spaces and didn't infiltrate other ones. So the philosopher existed in the, in the you know, academic setting and was, that's where they were, right? They had very little application in the real world. But then they started to see the emergence of other kinds of fields of expertise like doctors and psychiatrists that suddenly had a very strong influence on people's lives in, you know, in and around what people need to know about themselves, about their bodies, about their minds. So with that, with that kind of association of a certain power in the hands of those people, then what they came to say about the body, in a sense, came true. Now, this is a kind of phenomenological claim that is, in that setting, it was, you know, truth was created via the kinds of you know, perceptions we have of various things. But that's what Foucault is exactly trying to say, is that this doesn't come about because it, they are necessarily correct, but it comes about because they were kind of bestowed a certain authority in that system. And it's by virtue of that they are pr to produce, or they were able to produce what we know to be knowledge. And it is from there now that we move into chapter two, titled The Spectacle of the Scaffold. Now this moves us back to the beginning here, moves us back to the realm of torture. And it is from here we're going to build back up to the birth of the prison. So he starts out this chapter by saying, as I've already said, that torture wasn't all that common. That, you know, having people executed in the public square wasn't really common at all. Uh, instead, what most people suffered were, you know, fines uh, or banishment, right? You know, you were to be banished or excluded from society at large if you committed a certain crime. Now, this, be, this is because the majority of the crimes committed weren't, you know, capital offenses. That is, they weren't, you know, worthy of being tortured for. But that doesn't mean that they still weren't punished in some way, like I said, in banishment or fines. But they were also punished in other physical ways with like more, I guess, relatively uh, lessened forms of physical punishment, like having 
you know, being beaten, being flogged, being whipped, stuff like that, where the end goal was not death, but just to leave a mark so as to remind the person of their deed, their misdeed. In the domain of torture, however, Foucault suggests that there was a very, um, I guess, calculated process behind it, where the amount of torture that was to be inflicted, that is, each of the different acts in the torture to be uh, done for how long, uh, all of this stuff was determined in advance, because in advance, because there was a kind of code behind what torture was. It had to follow a certain set regime. So it wasn't like an arbitrary thing set out by, you know, determined by the person, the torturer in the moment, like a torturer thinking what will be the, you know, the best way to make someone suffer. It was instead something very well calculated and determined in advance, which is, which is important because it speaks to how the general process of justice at that time was not in itself really arbitrary either. And I think what he's doing here is he's trying to dissuade us from thinking that, you know, people at this time in the 16th, 17th centuries were just, you know, irrational, um, you know, I guess, arbitrarily inflicting pain without any kind of recourse to a system. Whereas he says, no, 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 no. There was a code. And we have to keep this code in mind because it has a number of consequences or it is repeated in a number of different ways in the judicial process itself. And this is adduced, or this is uh, evidence of this is provided in the way that proof was uh, presented, or how proof existed. So proof being, you know, proof against a criminal, that a criminal did an act. So he says that there were three forms of proof. There was either full proof, semi-proof, or fragmented proof. Now, it logically follows that two semi-proofs equal a full proof, and one full proof is enough for capital punishment. Now, in addition to any kind of proofs attained or amassed, uh, the uh, justice system also sought confessions. Now, the way by which confessions were uh, attained was very shady, in that, you know, they are often attained through torture, which we know now is not a very effective way to um, kind of attain a, a, a truthful confession. But what is interesting is that Foucault says that these people were very aware of that as well. Were no confession under torture was good enough in uh, court. So what had to happen was they would still torture people, get them to confess, but then that confession had to be repeated when the person wasn't being tortured, which I thought was kind of interesting and it troubled my idea of that of that time certainly and interestingly Foucault says that the kinds of torture that existed at that time kind of paled in comparison to the kinds of torture we see now so we could think of this in two ways that is in the way that I already presented that is how surveillance in its ubiquity that is its all-encompassing nature presents a more uh, ruthless form of control and 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 I guess domination than torture does, but also in the actual acts of torture that we're seeing happening all over the world, uh, from like Abu Ghraib to, you know, Guantanamo Bay to any other places on earth, really, where torture, you know, still has a very, you know, specific role, sorry, a specific role to play 
when it comes to, you know, inflicting pain to kind of get, um, you know, extract um, confessions from people. And this is especially true when we consider, you know, American foreign policy in the Middle East that saw it completely, themselves completely justified in torturing people to get, you know, information out of them. So it, it became kind of naturalized over this, over this course of time where it wasn't, you know, it wasn't following codes and conventions as Foucault outlines here, but instead kind of became arbitrary where people just torture in various different zones without, you know, any kind of recourse to an authority that is giving them codes. So instead they just kind of strap people up to like electrical batteries and, and, you know, just inflict pain, arbitrarily inflict pain. But that is kind of a, a digression here. So to go back to torture as or as a as a mode of confession, Foucault says that if the criminal, quote unquote criminal, the alleged criminal, were to hold out from confessing, then they couldn't be condemned. So if they were being tortured and they wouldn't uh, admit, confess to the crime, then they couldn't be put to death. And this is true even if they had mountains of evidence against this person. If they were tortured and still held out, that is, they didn't confess, they would not be put to death. So what lawmakers actually did at this time was just a mass evidence. They wouldn't actually torture people in search of a confession because of this kind of strange rule they had that if they the person actually went through torture and they didn't confess, then they wouldn't be able to be put to death. So often people would just bypass them being tortured and instead would just use the evidence that they had against them. So the encounter that existed in this moment between the torturer and the alleged criminal was then a kind of search for truth because it was the torturer's task to extract the ostensible truth from the person because this is how, I guess, this might be have been how the narrative went. If the person is holding a truth, torture will reveal it. If the person is not holding the truth, then they won't say it under torture, because torture is the kind of litmus test for what a person really knows. So this quest for truth here, I want to kind of highlight a little more, um, it was characteristically different from what we will see emerge because it was kind of confined to these basements, to these cells, to these kind of closed off areas where truth existed away from the public eye in terms of this, this system, which will come to change in the course of, throughout the course of this book, where truth seems to exist somewhat everywhere where anyone can access it and how that's a problem for Foucault. So what, what happens then if a person does, you know, get convicted and they are going to be tortured publicly for everyone to see. Well, Foucault says that this spectacle, what he calls the spectacle of the scaffold, that is the spectacle of someone being tortured and executed, had four functions. The first function was that the person being tortured would be both the sight, and in many cases the sound, the sound of their screaming, of the truth that the judicial system, juridicial system, sorry, was able to extract from the person. Now, what that did was supposedly affirm the process of the justice system, 
because it has this end product that says, look, through our process, we have found the truth, which happens to seep here into the second uh, function that is to uh, confirm torture, that is the process by which this truth was garnered, as a tool for extracting the truth. And now, th thirdly, what it did was connect torture specifically to a crime. So everyone would be told what the crime was, and then everyone would see what the torture was. Now, what this was meant to do was to teach people that if they committed that crime, that what they see happening is what will happen to them. And finally, the fourth goal was to kind of create a theatrical scene so as to uh, present a very, you know, terrible thing that no one wanted to undergo themselves, but also to kind of supply um, a climax, a dramatic climax to the search for truth in the justice system or in the judicial process. But in these moments, what was happening in the spectacle of the scaffold was not the people feeling themselves having been attacked and this person being tortured then, you know, making up for the harm that that person inflicted on the people. It was instead a demonstration of the sovereign's power. So that is the king, the queen, uh, any other kind of royalty that held power very specifically where everyone in that, I guess, that um, that area could would all agree that power was localized in the single point of the king or queen or king and queen, whatever. So what was happening in that was a demonstration of the king or queen or whatever, their power, their power over the body and their power, therefore, over the entire social body. So then there's no surprise that many public tortures and executions also had the presence of perhaps the king who would watch over it, right? Because they were the ones inflicting this, this pain through the proxy of the torturer. But also, you know, military people would be there. Uh, new, the newest weapons would be on display. And this was all a kind of pageantry meant to affirm the sovereign's power. And of course, this had the added function of sequestering, that is, uh, stopping any possible retaliation on the part of the people if they felt like the person was being unjustly treated, that is, the criminal being unjustly treated. But there was also an added, another possible um, effect, and that was, or another possible action that, that the sovereign could undertake, and that was the possibility to suspend the law for a moment. So there was a point when the sovereign would be able to reverse the uh, the torture process or to reverse the um, the person being condemned to death, which only further signaled the sovereign's power, which only further demonstrated it because they highlight that they could be outside of the law. They had such power over the law that they could actually take it away. And ironically, Foucault says that these executions, despite their effort to kind of drum up support for the sovereign and to highlight sovereign power, actually had a reverse effect. So earlier when I described how the, the person being tortured would have a moment before death where they can atone for their sins, they were often also extended the privilege to say whatever they want. So a lot of people who came to see the, um, the execution 
were not so much interested in having their idea of the sovereign affirmed, but they were interested in what someone who is has nothing else to lose might say in their final moments. So in that way, they developed a kind of connection, or they had a connection to the person being executed. Now, this was only exacerbated by the fact that there were uh, pamphlets and broadsheets being um, kind of given out to people as a kind of advertising campaign for the person being tortured, which was all meant on the part by the sovereign to kind of affirm their power. Uh, for the people, however, it kind of exalted the person being condemned. It kind of turned them into a celebrity figure. So there's really no surprise then that the risk of retaliation on the part of the public was very real, where there are a number of cases, and he outlines a number of them, where the executioner would have like food thrown at, at them, would be beaten, would, you know, people would charge the scaffold to try to, you know, release the prisoner. So this presented a problem. And the reformers at that time saw it necessary to get rid of these pamphlets and broadsheets that kind of uh, cast the person being condemned in a good light, so as to, you know, maintain the fact that what they were being punished for was not a good thing, and that this person shouldn't be exalted. So, yeah, that, that's pretty much what goes on here in this second chapter. And it's from here we move into chapter 3, titled Generalized Punishment. So as was foreshadowed in the end of the second chapter here, what the second half of the 18th century saw was an increase in retaliations against um, or resistance against these forms of punishment. So what was needed then was a new form of punishment to be exerted by you know, those in power. And what this ultimately was, was the emergence of a kind of new hum humane form of punishment that recognized the so-called humanity of the criminal being condemned, which became an object of investigation for people who were knowledge holders, as I suggested earlier, like doctors, psychiatrists, sociologists, anything like that, people who would study, you know, the human body and the human situation. So punishment then is transforms. It's not about the sovereign exacting revenge against someone that, that wronged them. It then changes into something else. It becomes a kind of mode of correction. So instead of saying we need to punish this person, the phrase becomes we need to correct this person. We need to fix this person. Now we shouldn't necessarily celebrate this. And there were quite a few figures behind this move, uh, what he just kind of generally calls the reformers that were comprised of doctors and philosophers, psychologists, or anyone like that, um, that he says that we shouldn't necessarily, be necessarily celebrate right off the bat, because he says that it actually had a kind of pernicious effect. And what was that pernicious effect? Well, it was in the favor of introducing a more universal yet humane form of punishment and control so whereas with the sovereign there would be you know the sovereign that was that represented the kind of social body that if anyone committed a crime it would be perceived as an attack against the sovereign so they were the kind of victim and then there was the judge that would administer the kind of uh crime or would or would prescribe the the right uh punishment um and then there were the lawyers and then there was the executioner Everything was all compartmentalized. Everything was too 
um, split was too open to like various things getting mucked up along the way. So what the reformers wanted was not, you know, to get rid of punishment more generally, but to find a way to administer it more effectively and more broadly, or as the title of the chapter suggests, to have it be more generalized. Now, this came about not because of a kind of enlightened or benevolent humanism, but instead was the product of a change in the entire social and political and economic landscape. So I want to read a little section here off of page 77. So the shift from a criminality of blood to a criminality of fraud forms part of a whole complex mechanism, embracing the development of production, the increase of wealth, a higher juridical and moral value placed on property relations, stricter methods of surveillance, a tighter partitioning of the population, more efficient techniques of locating and obtaining information, the shift in illegal practices is correlative with an extension and a refinement of punitive practices. So what was seen was a number of people gaining a kind of uh, wealth, and through that wealth, more people were able to acquire land, more people were able to, you know, have stuff that they would want defended, stuff that they would want to be kept safe, which demanded a more, a broader, you know, a broader mode of surveillance and control that would keep people safe. That was the fear. So this wasn't like, you know, a kind of benevolent move that came from an objective stance, but was motivated primarily by a fear. And this is all echoed in Madness and Civilization, Foucault's other book, when, you know, people who are considered mad weren't considered as such because of some kind of scientific discovery that, you know, identified madness in an objective way. But it was because people were scared of people that weren't normal. So what we essentially saw with this was the emergence of a kind of multiplicity among the people. So the power, or at least what the law sought to do, then became less of defending the sovereign's rights, less of defending what the sovereign had, and more of defending what the people had. So what at one time would have been considered, you know, more petty, like, I don't know, theft or something, was then given much more weight because suddenly everyone had a stake in theft. So property owners, that is, capitalists that could actually acquire a kind of stock as far as their production went, were then susceptible to a new kind of risk. And that new kind of risk demanded a new kind of punitive assembly. So punishment then was started to be dissociated from uh, a crime committed or a or uh, the consequence of a crime committed against the sovereign, and it became instead, according to the people, uh, a punishment because someone wronged the social body, that is, someone wronged the people. So whereas in the torture, the the illustration of uh, the spectacle of the scaffold that I outlined earlier, um, people actually held the person being condemned in a certain high regard, now people started to hate the condemned, because the condemned person was someone that wronged the people. So this new form of punishment, or this new kind of surveillance punishment, which we haven't fully delineated yet, but we will, was meant to, in very much the same way as torture, was meant to halt or to deter repeat offenses and to kind of instill in the mind of the people a fear of, you know, doing the same thing. 
But as opposed to torture, it doesn't do it in a very overt way. It does it in a covert way. That is, it hides its actions. So this new punishment then will abide by six rules, according to Foucault. The first one is what he calls minimum quantity. So that is, the punishment should not exceed the crime. There should be a very, very, very close uh, association between the punishment and the crime itself. And what this came down to was like making the punishment happen in the same place as where the crime was undertaken or to make the severity of the, cr of the punishment match as closely as possible the severity of the crime. Now, the second uh, rule, the second kind of function was what he called sufficient, sufficient ideality. So that is rely upon the representation of punishment more than the punishment itself. So if you could convince people that, you know, the punishment was something severe, that was more effective than showing them that it was severe. Third, uh, the third rule, what he calls lateral effects. So this is to scare people not to commit crimes for fear of death or torture, right? Fair enough. Um, number four here, perfect, perfect certainty. So that is make laws clear so that people know the risks of their criminal actions. So that is as soon as they commit a crime or as soon as they know they're going to commit a crime, they immediately associate that with the, um, with the punishment that will follow so that it's not arbitrary, so that it's not, um, you know, up to a kind of a subjective, you know, judge or executioner or something. And then the fifth rule, what he calls common truth. So do away with uh, speculation that is with things like half-truths or fragmented truths of the old system under torture uh, in favor of a more certain, uh, quote-unquote, objective form of juridical punishment or juridical uh, sentencing. And then finally, the sixth rule is what he calls optimal specification, which is the act of coding and kind of cataloging every single offense so that Everyone had the same, would suffer the same uh, uh, punishment for the same crime, and it could be easily um, looked up. It could be easily um, understood, so that people like what the first rule was meant to do: make it the person associate with the crime a very specific punishment. And what all these point to for Foucault is a kind of, it might seem ironic but a kind of individualization or a move towards individualization because it considers, you know, offenses in and of themselves as, you know, a thing that exists out in the world, not as something that needs to be determined in any specific moment. And it, um, it seeks towards punishing not the body, but the soul, which is inextricably tied to an idea of kind of individuality, to a kind of subjectivity. And from there... We get into chapter four. So now this titled The Gentle Way in Punishment. So as the, as the title suggests, moving away from violent punishment, making it gentle. And he reiterates here a few principles or a few necessary steps where number one is that punishment must be consistent and related to crime, like I've already mentioned. So whenever someone thinks of a crime, uh, they will correlate that with some punishment, which serves the purpose of naturalizing punishment. So if people think about the punishment as they're committing a crime in a kind of natural, spontaneous way, 
then punishment as a general thing comes to occupy a new space in the kind of cultural imaginary or in the kind of social sphere where people come to naturalize it. Uh, now, number two, it should make punishment appear worse than what the crime, uh, what the benefits might procure, what the benefits might allow for the person. Uh, there must be a set, I mean, this is number three, sorry, there must be a set out kind of temporal dimension to the punishment, like torture or whatever, what, what will be happening that is, uh, be it reform or punishment by being put in solitary confinement or something like that, there must be a temporal dimension so that people know what exactly they should expect. And that is not because it, it's more humane, but because it's meant to be more, as the other two suggested, more natural. It's People are just supposed to know exactly what will happen to them if they commit some crime. And fourth here, uh, punishment, it, it must be sold as a good thing. It must be sold as a benevolent alternative to torture. Um, that is because it is supposed to be seen as a kind of r repentance for what this person did against the social body. So the social body comprised of people that then think, thank God this is happening because this person has wronged me. Whereas when it was the sovereign, the people could say, I don't care about this person. This person sucks. Like, I'm actually happy something bad happened to them. So with this, it was no surprise that public work, that is like things like the chain gang or uh, forced labor, was a popular form of punishment because the social body could then see themselves re-benefiting or benefiting or having their kind of, um, kind of having the harm inflicted upon them compensated. So then the fifth thing here, very similar to the other ones, it's supposed to link realities. That's his words, or specifically, um, as soon as the crime is committed, the punishment will follow at once, enacting the discourse of the law and showing that the code, which links ideas, also links realities. That is the reality, the crime, with the reality of the punishment. Um, and now number six here, uh, the crime is transformed so that it isn't exalted, but is seen as a misfortune, right? So the person that committed the crime is not seen as a kind of renegade uh, fighter for the people. They are seen instead as a corrupted person that is in need of punishment or in need of help. And all of these different steps serve the purpose of making punishment seem normal. And in that case, seem kind of become invisible, right? Where people don't have a kind of, they don't see it because it's so uh, ubiquitous. Now, prisons then enter the scene. They become the zone where people who commit all these wrongs that do all these bad things are then cast to. So this is kind of us entering a new system here with these prisons that take people completely out of sight, that completely move people away from, you know, any kind of spectacle as a demonstration of an attack on the social body that is punishing people in some way or other moving them from where they could be seen as uh, compensating for the crime they committed to the prison. The prison then or will become the zone that is just associated with that process without even thinking about it. So that it being the kind of universal equivalent of all crime, 
where if you commit a crime, prison is the end point. And what the prison did was it transformed punishment from a specific, oh my God, sorry, from a specific act against a specific person to a uniform and homogenous punishment. So if you commit fraud, you go to prison. If you steal from someone, you go to prison. If you vandalize, you go to prison. If you um, beat someone for, for assault, you go to prison. If you're living in a place where execution is not a thing, if you murder someone, you go to prison. Prison becomes associated inexorably with punishment. It becomes what punishment is. But prisons weren't actually appreciated very much by the people because they seemed like a sign of despotism, like a kind of zone of total control, like the gulags or something. So the prison was able to kind of curb these immediate resistances to it with a few different functions or a few different kind of qualities that it obeyed. And these go as followed, follows, and this is on 121. So its functioning obeyed three great principles. That is, the duration of the penalties could, at least within certain limits, be determined by the administration itself according to the prisoner's conduct. Uh, number two now, work was obligatory. So it was performed in common. Indeed, the individual cell was used only as an additional punishment. Prisoners slept two or three to a bed in cells containing between four and 12 persons. And for the work done, the prisoners received wages. Uh, and then number three, a strict timetable, a system of prohibitions and obligations, continual supervision, supervision, exhortations, religious readings, a whole complex of methods to draw towards good and to turn away from evil, held the prisoners in its grip from day to day. Now, this image that the prison sold was true. Like, those are things that it did. And what that did was kind of tell those people resisting it that the prison was a good thing because it's putting people to work it's challenging idleness it's challenging licentiousness it is making people productive again it is uh, regimenting their lives with timetables and everything so that when they can come out of prison they will be productive members of society now this narrative served the end of justifying the existence of prisons to the public. And what this did, because, as I said, the prison was associated with punishment, and now the prison is now associated with the act of correcting, that is, fixing people to make them good again for society. Punishment and correction, if we follow the Socratic, you know, method here, that is, punishment equals prison, prison equals correction, therefore, punishment equals correction we see that logic emerge. But what it really does, and this is what Foucault wants to highlight, is it makes people obedient. It makes people follow order even more, or at least that is what its agenda was. So on the surface, it said, we are correcting people, we're gonna make them better for society. Underneath that, it was like, no, we wanna just control people. But Foucault says neither of those were really the case because he says, as he comes to say, uh, it certainly had the effect of rendering, rendering people docile, and that's the subject of the next chapter. But he's, he questions whether or not that is fully effective and instead points to what it is effective at.
So yeah, okay. So that'll wrap up this one here, just before the chapter on docile bodies, and then I think the next one is panopticism, or the one after that, something like that. Uh, but for those that listen this far, be sure to check out the next one, because I'm sure that's going to be the one that'll have all the good stuff that you want to know about. Um, and what I will say now, I will give a shout out to some of my patrons that I have now, uh, like Nicholas, Liam, and Soleil, I hope I pronounced that right, um, who are all helping me keep this going. Um, you know, this it's, it's a lot of work to do all this, uh, and I want to keep doing it for, or indefinitely, and every little bit helps. So if you can, you know, help me out. If you can't, totally cool. I, I totally get it. Uh, but if you have any problems or comments or anything with what I did here, uh, I would love to hear about them. So shoot me a line. You know to leave 